This is Macro Horizons, episode 76. Back to work? Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 6th. And in the wake of an impressive non-farm payrolls print on Thursday, we're reminded of the truism that regardless of the official government stats, when one is out of work, the unemployment rate is 100%. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed was really defined by the stronger-than-expected non-farm payrolls print on Thursday. It marked the end of a holiday-shortened week ahead of an early close and a long weekend. With Independence Day celebrations at hand, the market ended with a solid bid for risk assets and a decent re-steepening sell-off in treasuries. It's important to keep in mind that the price action in treasuries conformed to the broader expectation that while we might see the labor force re-engage, that doesn't necessarily translate through to economic growth. The Fed, the administration, and Congress have made great strides in attempting to bridge the gap of the shutdowns and what that means for employment and consumption, but we have yet to truly see the other side of the pandemic, and as a result, there's a great deal of uncertainty that remains in the system. We did see a stronger-than-expected ISM manufacturing print above 50, but it's important to keep in mind that this was June's data relative to what we saw in May, which again, off the lows of April as a primary theme. We are now fully into the third quarter with a better understanding of the depths of the recession in Q2, although the data cycle hasn't given us a complete picture and the real GDP print is still weeks away. Let us not forget a strong showing on consumer confidence for the month of June, higher than expected. And this brings us to one of our more urgent concerns, and that's the increase in COVID-19 cases that occurred during the final week of June. This certainly won't be reflected in the consumer confidence figures, so the better than expected print is easy to dismiss in that context. Similarly, we're not surprised to see market participants looking with a little bit of apprehension at the official employment data, given that the NFP survey week is the week of the month, which includes the 12th. Said differently, this most recent escalation in the pace of cases of COVID-19 has yet to make its way into the sentiment data. Along a similar vein, the pause in reopening efforts and potential for further lockdowns complicates matters. While it's difficult to imagine a series of shutdowns as dramatic as what we saw in March and April, it certainly isn't off the table depending on how quickly the new round of cases starts to increase as the virus makes its way across the U.S. 
One impressive piece of price action continues to be the ongoing bid for domestic equities. With the S&P 500 now solidly above 3,100, the year-to-date losses continue to be eroded, and we're now down into the single digits for the negative year-to-date performance. This is an important area to continue monitoring, if for no other reason than it's the best real-time gauge of market sentiment that we have in an environment where U.S. rates are largely contained to a range, the front end anchored to monetary policy, and the economic data coming in with a significant lag, complicated by data collection issues. So obviously two better than expected, very strong NFP reports in a row, but still 12 million fewer people are employed than before the pandemic hit. Where does this leave us? Well, Ben, that is the key question at this point. Not so much whether the recent economic data outperformed expectations, because in many cases it has, but rather The fact that we simply don't have context for shedding 12 million jobs in such a short period of time with the amount of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus that's been put into the system, what it all means for the state of consumption going forward. Now, there has been a fair amount of optimism, which has translated through to the continued outperformance of risk assets, but that isn't to suggest that this is the entire story. In fact, I'll make the argument, as we have in the past, that the outright level of employment, the outright level of production, the outright level of consumption is really what the market should be focused on. And we can see that to a large extent in U.S. rates with 10-year yields at 70 basis points, even despite the nearly 5 million NFP print. Yeah, Ian, one nuance inside the payrolls print that I think is really important is, you know, for the past few months, there's been a huge difference between permanent layoffs and temporary COVID-related layoffs. The latest data that came out suggests that the number of permanent job losses over the past few months has now risen to 2.9 million. So, you know, say we spread that across four months, that's still averaging something around 700, 750,000 per month. I think when you factor that in, it really makes a lot of sense why you only see a few basis point increase in rates, even after a multi-million beat in non-farm payrolls. There's also this notion that as the payrolls protection program eventually comes to an end, presumably later this year, that there'll be something of a day of reckoning for the employment market. It's one thing for the federal government to provide a bridge during the pandemic. It's another thing to actually subsidize industries and a composition of the labor force that is no longer consistent with the realities of the domestic economy. Yeah, I like that metaphor for a bridge, because if we go back to March and April, that is exactly what this was. This was just trying to keep people employed for as long as we need to weather this storm. The problem, of course, is that just a few months ago, the time needed to weather that storm was measured in weeks or months. There was a lot more skepticism that this would be a longer-running constraint. Given some of the outbreak that we've seen recently, it appears that this might be a longer-running problem, which is why I like that setup of a day of reckoning. They started building a bridge, but they weren't sure how far away the other side of the river was. Well, in keeping with that analogy, the Fed and Washington more broadly might soon find themselves in the middle of the river. 
having run out of construction material for the bridge. And I think that to some extent, that's part of the risk that is containing the outright level of treasury yields. Although we have seen a reasonably bearish response, particularly favoring a steeper curve in the wake of the employment report. So if the Fed falls in the river, does that mean there's a lot of liquidity everywhere? Monetary policy making a splash. Caps off to the swimming joke. So we have a long holiday weekend to digest the economic data, most notably the employment report. What does that set us up for as the third quarter fully gets underway? In supply terms, Ben, do we have anything to highlight? Yeah, Ian, particularly in the context of this week, it's a very sparse data calendar with the exception of ISM non-manufacturing on Monday. And that leaves supply as a bit more important in guiding yields than, at least in my mind, it otherwise would be. It's another record large reopening series for 10s and 30s. And following this latest jobs report, it's not unrealistic to expect a bit of a long end led concession heading into the events. Of course, the coronavirus stats are also going to garner attention. But really on the supply front, the results we've seen at auctions recently have been very encouraging, whether it be from domestic buyers or overseas bidders. The strength of the auction outcomes throughout the pandemic with record low yields at record large auction sizes supports the notion that regardless of the investor base, the demand for U.S. sovereign debt remains robust. We've highlighted Japan as a particularly strong case in the past, but it's not difficult to imagine that buyers in Europe, China, and elsewhere have been using the liquidity opportunities that the auctions provide to add exposure to treasuries. One of the quick caveats that I would add is that in moments of uncertainty for the global economic outlook, we often tend to see official money in emerging markets flow out of rather than into the treasury market. Now, this isn't a vote of no confidence for the asset class, but rather simply reflects the reality that certain regions need to raise cash to either shore up their economy or for currency exchange reasons. And let us not forget that aside from foreign government buying U.S. treasuries, the Fed has been especially active, obviously, with the ongoing QE program, as well as simply in auction add-ons. And in the vein of the Fed's continued $80 billion a month in treasury buying, it was especially interesting to see the answers to one of our special questions in the pre-NFP survey, which was, how steep do you ultimately anticipate twos tens will get in the second half of the year? Now, answers centered right around 75, 78 basis points. And admittedly, there was a wide range. But the fact that consensus is that that benchmark curve will only be able to achieve the steeps reached in mid-March during that dash for cash scenario that saw the curve steepen so substantially really is a testament to two things. First, the low outright level of yields is going to limit how far the long end can back up. And second, QE is going to mechanically limit how far rates are able to back up. Now, yield curve control is another wrinkle in that equation, but from what we saw in the minutes this past week, it doesn't seem like that's going to be an urgently deployed policy tool. On that point with yield curve control, one important nuance I'd like to emphasize is that in some ways, the Fed's already done a backdoor yield curve control by not only bringing up the idea and discussing it at length and keeping the door open, the market has to now probabilistically price in some chance of yield curve control in the future. What that translates to is a practical cap 
on how far two, three, and five-year yields can back up as long as yield curve control is an option. But if you really think about it, that's what yield curve control is. It's the Fed coming out and saying, we're going to keep short and intermediate tenor treasury yields low. Just the chance that they would formally confirm that does a version of the same effect. So I think a nice way to see this is the fact that five-year yields are at 30 basis points or so, and even after multiple months of multi-million NFP prints, they're not pushing anywhere up towards a 50 basis point level or something. So the nuance is that even if yield curve control isn't formally adopted, the chance that it might be in the next few quarters means that the price action kind of plays out in a way reminiscent of what a yield curve control program would look like. And outside of the yield curve control discussion, the other big takeaway from the minutes was that we should expect more concrete forward guidance going forward. Now, the uncertainty was around which metric the Fed wants to use as the bar to consider normalization again. And we should expect more clarity on what the front runner is between employment, inflation, or even just calendar based at some point over the next few months, maybe at a Fed meeting itself, or maybe more details would be revealed in the minutes of those meetings. Well, it's important to keep in mind that a lot of what the Fed is doing is simply responding to the contours of the pandemic. So to some extent, they were very aggressive in the beginning, getting ahead of what ended up being pretty significant lockdowns. One of the questions that we've received quite often is whether or not the Fed has run up against the practical extent of what they can and can't do, whether we should simply be expecting more of the same, i.e. an increasing Fed balance sheet or some new programs. And while yield curve control and level-specific forward guidance might ostensibly be new programs or new initiatives, in practical terms, there's simply an extension of what the Fed has already undertaken. I think it will be telling to see how monetary policy officials communicate the message and exactly how it is characterized. But again, in practical terms, the Fed's biggest tool at this moment is the balance sheet and the market's faith in their commitment to keep rates lower for the foreseeable future. And one extremely important side effect of that is that there is no doubt that the U.S. government can fund whatever fiscal stimulus program needs to occur. In essence, Ian, to your point, by leveraging the balance sheet and by having a credible commitment to have rates lower for longer, they're providing and ensuring fiscal space for the U.S. government to fund whatever stimulus program comes next. It's very unlikely that the CARES Act was the last of the stimulus programs that we're going to see. And the Fed's actions have removed the probability of a very sharp rate spike from the picture. Which I would argue is one of the main drivers behind the resilience we've seen in stocks. The S&P 500 continues to hold above that 3,100 level. And despite the pickup in coronavirus cases and the rollbacks of reopenings or even re-implementations of business closures, the ability of risk assets to retain the bid that they've had since mid-March has really been impressive and again reinforces the market's faith that the Fed and Congress still have more ammunition to counteract another substantial hit to the economy. So Ben, what you're saying is that there's really only one direction for stocks to go, right? Well, yeah, they're going to go up, they're going to go down, but maybe not necessarily in that order. Does squiggly count as a direction? As long as round is a shape. 
in the week ahead, the Treasury market will have the ability to continue digesting the stronger-than-expected employment report and the subsequent performance of risk assets with a Treasury market that remains remarkably contained. Last week represented the end of the second quarter, the end of the first half, and frankly a period in which most investors would like to put behind us and continue to move forward with reopening ambitions. The recent escalation of COVID-19 cases makes those reopening ambitions that much more difficult to achieve, however, and we anticipate that while supply might be on the market's radar, the big driving force will be the incoming case counts and associated return to stay-at-home orders for certain regions. As a theme, we continue to see little reason for the Treasury market to break the prevailing range in either direction. That 70 to 75 basis point zone in 10-year yields has become a preferred habitat, as it were. And as the week progresses, if anything, we'd be biased for a long-end-led concession to take down supply with 29 billion 10 years and 19 billion 30 years on offer. We're entering a period of the year that has historically been characterized by low liquidity, limited conviction, and a market largely absent. Given the realities of the work-from-home environment, we expect that that might differ this year. If for no other reason, the third quarter is an essential one in gauging the shape of the recovery. Whether it ends up being W-shaped, U-shaped, V-shaped, or L-shaped is certainly a question which will be debated in the coming months. Nonetheless, a market which is closer to full engagement than is typical for the summer months seems logical with the backdrop of the pandemic. Efforts to shed the COVID-15 while focusing on the COVID-19 notwithstanding, there certainly will be periods where liquidity is strained as market participants prefer the tradition of July and August vacations. The upcoming week might be something of a placeholder, and as we look to mid-July, We'll be eager to see any details on inflation revealed by CPI, as well as the Beige Book and, of course, retail sales for the month of June, which could add credence to the notion that the Fed's efforts have avoided an even worse economic outcome by propping up consumption during the second quarter. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as Independence Day celebrations kick off this weekend, please leave the pyrotechnics to the professionals. Just ask Lefty. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts.
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.